0: Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 14, Exodus chapter 16. Last week we uh, just started, or I guess last time we met we just started in our study of Exodus 16 and this week we're going to continue that study and talk a little about the provision of manna to sustain Israel. But unlike the Sunday school version of this story, there's a lot more to this episode than meets the eye. So let's begin by reading this, this rather long chapter of Exodus, chapter 16 in its entirety. Chapter 16 of Exodus. Turn your Bibles there, please. They traveled on from Elim, and the whole community of the people of Israel arrived at the Seine Desert between Elim and Sinai on the fifteenth day of the second month after leaving the land of Israel, the land of Egypt. Rather, there in the desert, the whole community of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The people of Israel said to them, "We wish Ad and I had used his own hand to kill us off in Egypt." There we used to sit around the pots with the meat boiling. We had as much food as we wanted. But you have taken us out into this desert to let this whole assembly starve to death. Adonai said to Moses, here, I will cause bread to rain down from heaven for you. The people are to go out and gather a day's ration every day. By this... I will test whether they will observe my Torah or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they brought in, it will turn out to be twice as much as they gather on other days. Moshe and Aharon said to all the people of Israel, This evening you will realize that it has been Adonai who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you'll see Adonai's glory, for he has listened to your grumblings against Adonai. What are we that you should grumble against us? Moses added. What I have said will happen when Adonai gives you meat this evening and your fill of bread tomorrow morning. Adonai has listened to your complaints and grumblings against him. What are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Adonai. Moshe said to Aharon, Say to the whole community of Israel, Come close into the presence of Adonai, for he has heard your grumblings. As Aharon spoke to the whole community of the people of Israel, they looked toward the desert, and there before them the glory of Adonai appeared in the cloud. And Adonai said to Moshe, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, at dusk you will be eating meat, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. Then you will realize that I am Adonai your God. That evening, quails came up and covered the camp, while in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the dew had evaporated, there on the surface of the desert was a fine, flaky substances, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they asked each other, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses answered them, it is the bread which Adonai has given you to eat. Here is what Adonai has ordered. Each man is to gather according to his appetite. Each is to take an omer per person for everyone in his tent. The people of Israel did this. Some gathered more, some less. But when they put it in an omer measure, whoever had gathered much had no excess, and whoever, whoever had gathered little had no shortage. Nevertheless, each person had gathered according to his appetite. Moses told them, No one is to leave any of it till morning, but they didn't pay attention to Moses, and some kept the leftovers until morning. It bred worms, and it rotted, which made Moses angry at them, so he gathered it morning after morning. So they gathered it morning after morning, each person according to his appetite, but as the sun grew hot, it melted. Well, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers per person. And all the community leaders came and reported to Moshe and he told them, this is what Adonai has said. Tomorrow is a holy Shabbat for Adonai. Bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, and whatever is left over, set aside and keep it for the morning. They set it aside till morning as Moses had ordered and it didn't rot or have worms. Moses said, today, eat that, because today is a Shabbat for Adonai. Today You won't find it in the field. Gather it six days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath, and on that day there won't be any. However, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather and found none. Adonai said to Moses, how long will you refuse to observe my mitzvot and my teachings? Look, Adonai has given you the Shabbat. This is why he is providing bread for two days on the sixth day. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people called the food manna. It was like coriander seed, white, tasted like honey cakes. Moshe said, here's what Adonai has ordered. Let two quarts of manna be kept through all your generations so that they will be able to see the bread which I fed you in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. Moshe said to Aharon, take a jar, put in it two quarts of manna, and set it aside before Adonai to be kept through all your generations. Just as Adonai ordered Moshe, Aharon set it aside before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they arrived at the borders of the land of Canaan. Three million Israelites are hungry. They've been gone from Egypt for nearing two months. Their food supply is running out. So they come to Moses and they want to know why he would bring them out into the desert wilderness just to die from starvation. Moses takes his complaint to Jehovah and the Lord responds, God tells the Hebrews that he is going to feed them by raining bread down from heaven. Now, the Hebrew word for bread is lechem. But lechem also is a general word that can mean food. Okay, just like the old-fashioned term breaking bread together, literally meant taking a loaf of bread and and breaking or cutting it or sharing it, it it really most often simply means to eat a meal together. Bread here, in this context, just means food in general, not literal bread. But then God starts to set up and teach an important principle to the Israelites, by means of his commands concerning the bread, the food he'd provide them. They were to gather all the manna they needed to satisfy their appetites, but only enough for one day at a time. And each day they were to do this except on the sixth day. They were to gather a double portion, a two-day supply. Now, at this point in Exodus 16, the story about the bread from heaven detours a little bit and then picks up on a few verses. But rather than skip around, we'll just follow the flow of the Bible verses. Now, something rather interesting is said in verse 6. Upon Moses and Aaron repeating the Lord's commands to the people concerning the gatherer of manna, they say that this is so you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Actually, what it says is, this is so you shall know it was yud vav It was Yehovah who brought you out of Egypt. As I've mentioned on numerous occasions, more than nine out of ten times in the Torah that you see the words Adonai or Lord or God in the original, it was yud vav is the Lord's formal and personal name. But the issue I'd like to point out is not about his name. It's that obviously the Israelites had real doubts as to who it was that was responsible for their leaving Egypt. Now, we've already seen a couple of incidents where difficulties arise and immediately the Hebrews blame Moses. In other words, this people who, like all other people of their era, were superstitious and they believed in magic and sorcery, they weren't really convinced that this was the God, Yehoveh, who had orchestrated the plagues back in Egypt, parted the waters of the Red Sea, and so on. Even with that cloud that was leading them by day, and the fire that emitted from that cloud, every night the people doubted. Moses was the visible human presence. Okay. And so Moses caught all the grief. <laughs> Therefore, as it so clearly says in this verse, part of, the re- a part of the lesson from the manna was to teach Israel that it was Jehovah and not Moses who rescued Israel from Egypt. This is a lesson that Israel will not fully grasp for decades. Now, the instruction... Moses and Aaron receive from God about the food God would supply, they now pass on to the people of Israel. And in verse 7, Moses and Aaron reminds the people that while they may think that they're griping and murmuring and complaining is directed at the human leaders, in fact, it's actually Jehovah who they're expressing a displeasure with and he hears them. Moses goes on To tell Israel that God knows their needs and will, of course, supply it. He tells them that at sunset, the beginning of a new day, God will give them meat to eat. And then in the morning, still the same day, bread, food to satisfy their hunger. In verses 9 and 10, Moses then instructs Aaron to call for the entire community of Israel to come near. Come near to the presence of God. They obeyed. And as they looked out into the desert wilderness, out in front of them, there they saw the glory of God in the cloud. This phrase, this glory of God, is the English translation of the Hebrew words, Kavod Yehovah." Kavod Yehovah. Is this Kavod Yehovah? some new divine experience for Israel? To look upon the cloud now and see the glory of Of Yehovah? Of course not. It was the same cloud. That same presence of God that had been leading them, that had protected them from Pharaoh's army and had been fully available for their vision every day, all day since leaving Egypt. So why did Moses have to Tell these people to stop, look up, and then come near to God's presence because while God's presence is available to us, we must choose to come near to Him. Okay. What is it that we hear preacher after preacher admonish us to do? Keep our eyes upon Jesus who is our present day glory of God. Israel had either taken their eyes off of the cloud of God's glory or not fully recognized that the cloud was the presence of God. And so they became disheartened and they became disillusioned and disoriented. Same exact thing happens to us. We get so used to the idea of Yeshua within us, guiding us, that he becomes like an old piece of furniture right? just another feature of the landscape and so he goes unnoticed in our lives God's presence had never left Israel the people just quit looking upon it well it was sunset verse 13 says when a vast horde of quail suddenly fluttered down upon the startled camp of Israel. Reminding us a little of Egypt when God used natural elements of his creation in extraordinary ways to smite Pharaoh and his people. Jehovah uses the quail in a supernatural way to bless his people. Quail migrating across the Sinai and Arabian peninsulas at that time of the year is a completely normal thing. Okay. That they would swoop down for a rest in mass, having grown exhausted from their long flight was not at all an uncommon occurrence. That they would do so at God's command in such vast quantity at the exact spot needed, that was the supernatural aspect of this miracle. Now one can only imagine The Hebrews wonder and awe. I mean, what a day they had just experienced. Called by Moses to come near to the Kevod Yehovah, the glory of God. They had once again experienced God's awesome presence in their lives and became comforted by it. Yet before dark even. God had also brought them meat from the skies, and so they went to bed with their bellies full. And then they arose in the morning from a restful sleep that only comes by being fully satisfied. The rising sun now reveals an even greater miracle. Because there, upon the desert sands, was something that looked like a very delicate frost. It was everywhere. And verse 13 says the Hebrews looked upon it and they asked one another, what is it? In Hebrew, what is it is manhu, from which we've derived the word manna. Moses tells them it is the bread, the lechem, meaning food from heaven that God has promised to send them, to sustain them. It also explains that the coming of the manna each day was associated with dew. Now, taken together with a description that we'll also find about this event in Numbers 11, verse 9, that says, when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall upon it, we get this more complete picture about what it must have looked like. There, there would be a fall of dew, and then the manna would flutter down upon it, And then another layer of dew would fall over the manna. a Kind of a manna sandwich. Apparently, this kept the manna fresh and clean for them. Now, Moses issues an interesting instruction concerning the manna. Each man is to gather as much as he thinks is needed to fully satisfy himself. Yet at the same time, they were told to gather an omer of it, which is about a half a gallon for each person. Now let me make a quick note for you who have already heard this term Omer before, used in a different way as associated with the Biblical feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread. And Omer is more correctly associated with being simply a sheaf. right? Just a sheaf of grain. So in the ritual of bringing in the first omer, it simply means bringing in the first sheaf of grain stalks from the harvest. Only here in Exodus is the omer some kind of measure of volume. All right? Perhaps an omer here in Exodus is equal to the amount of grain that's actually, that's actually contained within a typical sheaf of grain stalks. Anyway, when the Hebrews went out and gathered the manhu, a very strange thing happened. Whether they gathered more than an omer or less than an omer, once they put it into an omer-sized jar, everyone had the same amount. The meaning of this has been the source of many interesting commentaries. But at the bottom of it, because what the Israelites would have learned from this mystery, there was no need to hoard, no need to rush out to be the first to gather, no need to worry if there was going to be enough provision available from God for all of them. That, that, that is God's economy. His bounty is endless, and equality is not about giving everyone exactly the same. It's about giving to each person fully what they need. Now, verse 19 brings with it another reminder from Egypt. Passover, to be specific. The Hebrews are to gather each day only enough, manhu, to eat that day, and there to dispose of the remainder, leaving nothing by daybreak. You remember that same instruction about the Passover ram? that they were to eat their fill but dispose of the remainder before morning. But many of the Israelites ignored that part of the teaching and to their disgust found that the leftover manna rotted, had worms, and was otherwise unedible. Funny, isn't it? We We tend to look at God's instructions and commands and follow the parts of them that make sense to us and kind of blow off the parts that don't. You know, I'm not suggesting a mechanical legalism by any means at all, being a better avenue to follow, but, but here we see God's position on obedience and how blessing, blessing upon blessing can be ruined by man's rebellion and carelessness and casualness or worse, by our personal determination of which of God's commands and ordinances are important, and the rest aren't. In verse 22, they were instructed that on the sixth day, they were to gather double the normal amount of manna. And in verse 23, the reason for this is given. It's because the seventh day is a Sabbath of holiness to Yehovah and therefore none is to be gathered on the Sabbath. They were given permission to prepare the manhu any way they wished. Baked, boiled, grilled, blackened, whatever they wanted to do. But had to be done before the end of the sixth day. And by the way, God was not going to rain down any manna on the seventh day. What we have here is the 1st reestablishment of Sabbath for the Hebrew people. In other words, while indeed Shabbat keeping would be part of the formal law given by Jehovah to Moses on Mount Sinai, the Sabbath had already been established. First to creation, and then here in regards and in the context of the gathering of manna. Now after the experience of gathering extra manna, not using it up and finding it full of worms and maggots the next morning, one can only wonder what was going through the people's minds about this particular instruction. But most did as they were told and as they entered the Sabbath, sure enough, whatever they had prepared the previous night was still fresh and edible the next day. And yet after all that happened, some people still got up, we're told, on Sabbath morning took their baskets and went out and expected to gather manna as normal. Naturally there was none to find. Now this behavior really infuriated Moses. So he said, fine, you're all under house arrest. You stay home. Stay where you are. Don't you go out from your tent on the Sabbath. Stay home. Now we could probably spend an entire session doing nothing but discussing all the pertinent meanings and commands God has ordained concerning the Sabbath, of setting our labors aside, not gathering our sustenance on the Sabbath, even of Moses ordering the Israelites to stay in their homes. And if we were to study the way Shabbat is observed by traditional Jews, we would find every effort to maintain the intent of God's command concerning the Sabbath. But we're not going to stop here and do that. A little later in Exodus, maybe into Leviticus, we'll get into the Sabbath in depth. Now, I, I tell you from the heart, I'm unsure of just what to present to you about the Sabbath because it's complex. And it's full of reverence to our holy God that has been almost completely obscured by an anti Jewish tradition based church. Now, now let me say something briefly about all that for now, to get just to give you food for thought. Right, because while the Sabbath is important to God, it's also a very thorny issue for Christians. Now, whether you believe that some or none Of the 613 laws of the Mosaic Covenant pertain to Christians, the fact is that keeping the Sabbath holy is one of the Ten Commandments that forms the pillar of the church. Uh, Is anybody here in disagreement with that? Hmm? Yet I also don't think we take the matter of Sabbath seriously enough. Nowhere in the Bible has God rescinded the command of the Sabbath. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that for our modern modern generation or since Christ it's okay to go work seven days of work and ignore the Sabbath. Many church leaders have taken Paul's meaning particularly in Colossians 2 to mean that the institution of the Sabbath can be made into anything man wants which, by the way, makes no sense whatsoever to understand it in that way. I mean, this is what happens when biblical passages are taken out of context in order to try to validate a predetermined agenda. Now, remember this. In the Sermon on the Mount, another pillar of the church, without doubt, Jesus says in Matthew 5.17 that in no way, Has he come to abolish the Torah, or as many Bibles say it, the Law and the Prophets? Further, he says, not the slightest detail, not a jot or a tittle shall pass from the Torah until all heaven and earth pass away. The Sabbath is a rather significant element of the Torah, wouldn't you say? Also remember that it is simply documented and historical fact that the early church continued to follow the biblical, biblical rule of the Sabbath as Saturday right on up until Emperor Constantine ordered the Sabbath abolished. And he replaced it by something called the Lord's Day, which, is, which was to become the new day in which the Gentile church would come together for communal worship this new day of communal worship to be called the Lord's Day was designated to be the first day of the week, Sunday, which was already the traditional day of national communal worship for the primary pagan religion of the Roman Empire, the Mishra'an sun worshipers, which is why Sunday is called Sun Today, this was chosen as a political compromise between the sun worshipers and the Christians. Let me quote directly for you a couple of edicts handed down in the early 300s AD when this all happened. And by the way, the ancient official documents I'm about to quote from for you. You can go find it at your local library or on the internet. It's all available in the public record. Okay. First, I'm going to read to you a section about the very first Sunday law, ordered and enacted by Constantine during his second meeting with the Council of Church Bishops in Nicaea in 321 A.D. This is a direct quote. On the venerable day of the sun, Sunday, okay, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest. Let all the workshops be closed. In the country, however, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits, because it often happens. That another day is not so suitable for grain sowing or vine planting. Lest the neglecting, by neglecting the proper moment for such operations, the bounty of heaven would be lost. Given the seventh day of March, 321, Crispus and Constantine being consuls, each of them for the second time. What happened in these several councils of Nicaea was that the Gentile Christian church was established and the Jewish Christian church was abolished. Some 16 years after this, that I just read you, the first Sunday law was enacted, this following edict was handed down from another of these Roman church councils at a place called Laodicea. And I quote for you, Christians shall not Judaize and be idle on the Sabbath, but shall work on that day. But the Lord's day, Sunday, they shall especially honor and as being Christians shall, if possible, do no work that day. If, however, they are found Judaizing, they shall be excommunicated. Understand that in this context, Judaizing simply refers to a Christian doing anything that the Jews traditionally did. So, for example, if Jews honored the biblical feasts, Christians should not. If Jews baptized by submersion, Christians should not. If Jews lit candles and ate challah bread on the Sabbath, Christians should not all these things would be called Judaizing. And since Jews honored the Sabbath, then Christians should not. The principle that was begun in the 4th century and now firmly entrenched in our modern church was this. If the Jews do it, Christians shouldn't. Christians who did anything Jews did in relation to honoring God were said to be Judaizing. And this would result in being excommunicated from the church. Now, I know this is not an easy subject. But at the risk of offending you, I must say that the reason it is not easy is because we love our traditions and prefer our doctrines to what the scriptures tell us. That's the truth of it. So we run around twisting and allegorizing the Bible in order that we have it mean what men have decided they want it to mean. There are plenty of passages in the Bible that are very difficult and their understanding is not straightforward, but the passages on Sabbath aren't like that. They're plain and unequivocal. Now let me give you a rather interesting view of the Catholic Church concerning Sunday, rather than Sabbath worship. And by the way, Catholics lay claim to Constantine as one of theirs. Now, what I'm about to read to you comes from the official publication of the Catholic press, the official Catholic newspaper, and this was written just a little over a century ago. Pay close attention to this. This is fascinating. Quote, Sunday is a purely Catholic institution, and its claim to observance can only be defended on Catholic principles. From beginning to the end of Scripture, there is not a single passage that warrants the transfer of weekly public worship from the last day of the week, Saturday, to the first, Sunday. Do you understand what I just quoted you? The Catholic Church who claims the establishment of Sunday as the communal day of worship for Christians says outright that nowhere in Scripture, Old Testament or New, is there a single passage that would allow the first day of the week as worship and rest that can be substituted for the God-ordained seventh day of the week. What a strange thing to say. But that statement is factually true in every possible sense. But why was that statement made and communicated to the world? I mean, why would the Catholic Church say such a thing? Because it sounds as though it's condemning itself. Alright, for Sunday worship, by openly admitting the truth, that scripturally there's nothing to indicate that any day other than the 7th Saturday is the Sabbath. You see, this that I just read you was part of a ongoing argument against Protestants who of course deny the all-important doctrine of the Catholic Church that the Pope has been given special authority, given this authority directly from God, To change or add or subtract from the scriptures. So in yet another article, continuing the debate, again from the official Catholic press, we get this, and I quote, Protestantism, in disregarding the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, has no good reason for its Sunday theory and autologically keeps Saturday as the Sabbath. In other words, the Catholic Church openly admits there is no zero, nada, scriptural authority at all for abolishing or moving the Sabbath to Sunday. However, since in their view the Pope has the authority from God to change whatever he believes God has directed him to change, then the act of the Roman Catholics, Constantine, and the Roman bishops abolishing the Sabbath and instead observing Sunday as a new and different day of meeting is fine. The Catholics view Constantine as a Pope. Okay. Conversely, since Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church several centuries ago, and since Protestants deny the authority of the Pope and the Catholic Church as empowered by God to alter scriptural commands, on what basis can Protestants say they can change the Sabbath? And the implied answer is there can't be any. You got two ways to do it: the Pope or the Scriptures. The Scriptures don't don't give you the authority. Well, and another Catholic press article says this: It is well to remind the Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, and all other Christians. That the Bible does not support them anywhere in their observance of Sunday. Sunday is an institution of the Roman Catholic Church, and those who observe that day observe a commandment of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, does that hit you where it ought to? I mean, do you understand that the Catholic Church completely acknowledges that Sunday observance is not a biblical command? It is a command of the Roman Catholic Church government. I mean, does that bother you just a little bit? Man, I hope it does. And believe me, I know how uncomfortable it is to scrutinize traditions and doctrines that have been the mainstays of our church lives. But discomfort is just not a good enough reason to to skirt this issue, or worse, disregard the plain scriptural truth. So let me frame this just a little differently. How about if each Christian denomination simply voted to decide which day should be the Sabbath? How about a Torah class determined by majority rules that mm, Tuesday, third day of the week, would become our Sabbath? How comfortable would you be with that? For most, not very comfortable at all. Because hopefully we'd all ask ourselves By what Biblical authority can we do such a thing? But if we took Paul to mean what is most often taught that he said about the Sabbath, that is that men can make Sabbath any day they want, then why can't we just move it around? Do it whenever we feel like it. As a matter of fact, why don't we just make Sabbath a different day every week? Or change it from year to year so it can be fair and equitable to everybody? Or how about we have four Sabbaths running together at the end of the month so we can have more time off? Hmm? Or maybe no Sabbaths at all this month, because we've got a lot to do. I, mean, I see some of you frowning and some of you laughing, but that's the problem with trying to defend the traditional Gentile Church's dubious position that we can change the Sabbath and observe it any way we please. If you decide that's really so, That means we can do anything with it that suits us. And we all inherently know that that cannot be the case. In that indeed is not what Paul said, nor what he meant. Now, I'm not advocating moving all church services to Saturday, although I do think it would be very healthy for the church. Every day is a good day to worship God, but every day is not the Sabbath. Every day is not the seventh day of the week, every day is not the day that God ordained in Genesis as the Sabbath is reinforced here in Exodus, again at Mount Sinai and all throughout the Bible, including by the way the New Testament. Now let's all remember that Yeshua Himself, Jesus the Christ, observed the seventh-day Sabbath, but as individuals or as families we can certainly honor God's Sabbath, the seventh day, and still participate in the Lord's day, as long as we remember it's a non-scriptural Gentile tradition, if that's what we want to do. That's great. Not a thing in the world wrong with that. We can honor the day God ordained the Sabbath by taking God's intent to rest and be with our families and worship Him on the seventh day, and we can still attend church or Sunday school or on the Lord's day. That's what we wish to do. So I'm not here to condemn any denomination or or to tell you to abandon going to church on Sunday. But I am saying that Shabbat is an important enough issue that we cannot do whatever we wish just because we always have. Anyway, in verse 32, God has commanded that a jar of manhu be set aside as visible proof for all generations of the miracle of God's provision during Israel's time in the wilderness. So where is this jar of manna today? Well, when they find the Ark of the Covenant, they'll find the jar of manna. Because the Ark contains the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, Aaron's budding staff, and a jar of manna. This is the meaning of verse 34 about placing the manna before the testimony, it says. Another name for the law for the Torah. And you can bet that when they do find it, the manna will be perfectly preserved. Now, as we near the end of chapter 16, allow me to point out something of a general nature that students of Torah need to know. Moses did not personally write the entire content of all five books, of Torah, which are today called the Five Books of Moses. When someone asks me who wrote the Torah, I commonly say Moses, but only as a broad and general response. The rabbis have always recognized that others recorded parts of the Torah because parts of it were written in retrospect after Moses was dead and gone. We get an example of this right here. Because it says in verse 35 that they ate manna all 40 years in the wilderness until they came to settle in the land of Canaan, by which time Moses was dead. So for those of you who might say, wait a minute, how can these verses be speaking of stone tablets and an ark that, notice, haven't been created yet? Because they haven't even arrived at Mount Sinai yet. Remember, the Torah is not in perfect chronological order. Let me put it another way. Moses didn't write a diary. The Torah was not written like a daily journal. Moses didn't write down a few sentences about what happened that day, and then a little bit more tomorrow, and so on and so forth, like a news report, until the Torah was completed. Most of the events and instructions we see in the Torah were written by Moses and others after the fact as history so that it was coherent and understandable by future generations. Well, chapter 16 closes by giving us the interesting piece of information that Israel ate manna for 40 years. God provided them with that heavenly food for the entire time They were in the wilderness. But the moment they entered the promised land, it quit coming as quickly as it had begun. Next week we'll take up chapter 17.